Peter Olufsen penned his article, A Deity in Touch with His Own Bad Self, for the New York Times way back in 2001. Now, before I quote Mr. Olufsen, allow me to give you just a little bit of context. He's writing about playing a genre of video games wherein the character you play as is actually God. And so you come with your own little subjects and worshipers, and you can do whatever you want. They're called God games. And this is what he writes. As a god, I can be a devil. When I got up on the wrong side of of the bed on a recent Sunday... I took it out on my little worshippers in the computer game Black and White. I sought to create rock slides on mountainsides above their island community. When that proved ineffective, I dropped boulders and trees directly on their houses. When the roofs crashed in and the occupants ran screaming from the wreckage, I picked them up and threw them about like dolls. Then I dropped rocks on them too. And that was just for the people who believed in me. I picked up a hermit who didn't believe, in, didn't believe in me and dumped him unceremoniously into the ocean. Black and white allows you to be as benevolent or malevolent a deity as you wish. And it turns out I can be a moody, unpredictable God. And when I have a tantrum, I'm not shy about who knows it. I, for one, am thankful that Mr. Olufsen and none of us, is God. But in what sense is the God of the Bible like these computer game gods? What is God like? This is the question we're going to be attending to over the next few weeks as we work through the book of Micah together. And in fact, this short book is called a minor prophet, and it concerns itself with what God is like. And Micah's name actually means who is like the Lord. And so there's a little play on words there if that helps you remember one of the major themes of the book, which is to tell us what God is like. Micah's name means who is like the Lord. Micah is a minor prophet, and he's called minor not because he's insignificant or unimportant, but because of the length of his book. It's very short. It's only seven chapters. And so he gets the title minor. That's where he's cataloged in the scriptures. And as you know, we've already read the first two chapters this morning, and I saw some eyebrows go up, what does this mean? Uh, And we're going to try and uh, dive into all of that, and we're going to do it right away. And so let me just give you my main idea, my outline, pray, and then we'll work through it together. The main idea, I think, of chapters 1 and 2 is that God is holy, and that he always acts according to his holy character. Our outline is as follows. Look at God's holy wrath. Man's unholy sin, God's holy deserved judgment, God's holy undeserved grace. I did some punning there. I hope you appreciate it. Um, I love puns. And Micah does too, which we'll see in verses 10 through 16. But let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, help us to come before you this morning and to consider the scriptures afresh pray that you would apply the words of the gospel anew to our hearts and encourage us. And I pray that you would give us a deep sense of awe at you. That we would be amazed at the weight of your glory. At the amount of power that defines you. Father, be with us now. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start back at verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morshite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. Micah here is speaking God's word to God's people and he is urging them to pay attention. He's telling them, listen up because God is leaving his holy dwelling to bring charges against you because you have done wrong. He's alerting them to the fact that the Lord who formerly marched forth against their enemies is now coming forth against his own people. Listen to the description of God's coming judgment. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. Mikomiski comments, Under the heat of God's glowing wrath and under his heavy tread, the eternal and majestic mountains melt and flow like hot wax. And can you imagine the mountains around us just puddling? into the valley. They flow like hot wax. And the arable plains where humans find their immediate source of life split apart like waterfalls roaring down a rocky gorge. When mountains melt like wax before the Lord, they are no more. When fertile valleys are poured into a gorge like cascading waterfalls down a rocky slope, then humanity's place of life and hope is entirely removed. When this majestic God suddenly erupts with justice, puny human walls and fortifications crumble and fall into the ravines. Humans feel secure as the long-suffering God remains in heaven. But when he marches forth in judgment, they are gripped by the stark reality that they must meet the holy God in person. God leaves his throne to bring judgment against sin. God hates sin. God gets angry. And many are troubled by his anger. I think this is due in part to the fact that we like to think of God as if he were like us rather than completely other than us. That's what the word holy means at the end of the day is other than. God is different from us, but because we like to think of him as a lot like us, we like to imagine that his anger is somehow like our own anger. And so we assume that God can be fickle and sinful in his anger, much like we can. And so we foolishly think that God's anger is a little bit like Mr. Olafson's, the result of an unpredictable tantrum that is born out of getting up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning. God is not like this, though. His anger is always sinless, always right, always just. He's morally pure and steadfast. He is unchanging and he rightfully punishes those who refuse to know, fear, acknowledge, and love him. God justly pours out his wrath on those rebels that refuse to give him the exclusive worship that he is due. 
I think another reason that people are troubled about God's wrath is a mistaken view of his love. I think Timothy George is helpful in this. He says, God's love is not sentimental. It is holy. It is tender, but not squishy. It involves not only compassion and kindness and mercy beyond measure, but also indignation against injustice and unremitting opposition to all evil. God opposes evil. His holy character demands that he rightly judge and punish evil. J.I. Packer addresses this in his book, Knowing God, writing, People today are in the habit of disassociating the thought of God's goodness from his severity. We must seek to wean them from this habit, since nothing but misbelief is possible as long as it persists. Indeed, contemporary people have decided that all religions are equal and equivalent and have begun adhering to the doctrine of a celestial Santa Claus, which culminates in the salvation of all men. Sins create no problem for this doctrine, and atonement is needless. God's active favor extends no less to those who disregard his commandments, the wicked, than it does to those who keep them. The idea that God's attitude towards me is not affected by whether or not I do what he says has no place in the thought of the man on the street. And any attempt to show the need to fear God's presence Any attempt to show a need for trembling at his word gets written off as impossibly old-fashioned and intolerant. Yet the Santa Claus theology defeats itself, for it cannot cope with the fact of evil. See, evil is no problem for the God of the Bible. He punishes and he judges. But evil is a problem for the good God of liberalism. Thus, as many have strayed further and further away from the one true God, we have been left with an impotent God that must not have full sovereign reign over all things because of the existence of evil. To adopt this Santa Claus theology is to be left with a God who means well, but cannot always insulate his children from trouble and grief. See, the problem of evil for this untrue God leads one into the land of doubting castle and giant despair. Only by learning to relate God's goodness to his severity, according to the scriptures, can we return to a true vision of the true God. God's goodness cannot be separated from his severity. God is rightfully infuriated by idolatry and injustice. And God's wrath is how he deals with evil. Friends, the world ultimately is broken because you and I are evil. Because we have, like Peter Olufsen, in a much more real sense, tried to play God ourselves, which is a rebellion against the Creator. We've chosen to listen to our hearts instead of His Word, and we deserve His wrath. That's why the world is broken. But God, in his graciousness, in his love, in his mercy, has made a way for us to be made holy as he is holy, to be grafted into his family, to be heirs of the renewed world that is to come. And that way is through faith in Jesus Christ, who lived and died as humanity's substitute, as your substitute. God takes sin so seriously that he did not simply sweep sin's consequences under the rug and remain in heaven. 
but instead took sin's consequences himself. Here in Micah, he's judging as he comes down and the mountains melt beneath his feet. But when he comes in the person of Jesus Christ, he comes not to bring judgment, but to bear it. And he himself is melted atop of the mountain known as Calvary as he dies for man's sins. In his first advent, Jesus came to bear humanity's judgment. But when he comes again, it will be to bring judgment. He will bear the sword once more, as he does here in Micah. Do you see why, if you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, that the good news about Jesus will not thrill or empower or move you? Do you get that? Because if sin is no big deal, then Jesus died for no reason, and his death is no big deal. This is why the person who thinks little of sin will think little of the Savior. Sin is serious. Still contemporary people do not like to hear about God's wrath, but we do need to know about it. We need to know that God is graciously wonderful to those who trust him and that he is rightfully terrible to those who reject him. The truth about God's wrath means that we need to submit ourselves to his plans for our lives rather than our own, or we will face judgment. It is as if we are standing on train tracks and a locomotive is bearing down on us. We are in trouble and we need to know about it. God's wrath is coming for those who reject his love, for those who reject Christ. Yet this rubs us the wrong way. And so we look for ways to dismiss the clear teaching of Scripture by seeking out teachers that will lead us to hear what we want to, that will allow us to make excuses so that we don't need to repent or change the way we live. Israel did the same thing. Not much has changed. Look at what they did in verses 6 and 11 of chapter 2. You can turn over there. This is Micah. Uh, telling us what's going on a little bit. He says, quit your preaching. They, which is false teachers, preach. They, referring to Micah, should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. He continues down in verse 11. If a man of wind, a windbag, comes and invents lies, he would be the perfect preacher for you all. If he said, I will preach to you about wine and beer, he would just be the preacher for you. Micah's calling attention to the fact that those refusing to repent are silencing his true preaching with their false preaching. Micah's warning the people about God's judgment and the false prophets are lying to the people by promising them abundance. That's what the little note about wine and beer there refers to. It's affluence, it's prosperity, it's lots of wine and beer. And who doesn't like that? It's what they want to hear. Mikomiski comments once more, Micah scathingly and sarcastically rakes the people for being willing to ordain as their prophet any windy liar who joins them in their criminal cupidity by tailoring his message to their greed. I found that we American evangelicals are often eerily similar. We want our need for religion, or as we would call it, spirituality. We want it met, but we want it tailored. And so we choose the books we read, the parts of the Bible we believe, and the churches we attend 
based on what makes us feel good, based on where we'll find encouragement, based on what will help us to continue living as we're living, which I think is weird because nobody, nobody does life this way practically. Right? Nobody chooses their doctor or their banker based on those people telling them what they want to hear, right? I mean, you can imagine choosing a doctor based on the fact that uh, she always gives a positive diagnosis, right? You get on Google, you're searching for a doctor, they got five stars, never given one negative diagnosis. Everybody is always healthy that goes to this doctor. That's where I want to go. No, you, you wouldn't choose a doctor based on her telling you what you want to hear. No, you would want to hear the truth because the truth is what will help you get healthier. You need a right diagnosis to get better. Now, if you wouldn't choose a doctor this way, I wonder why we choose what books we read, what scriptures we believe, what teachers we listen to, or what church we attend this way, based on them telling us what we want to hear. You see, friends, truth matters. Truth matters. In ignoring the truth about God's wrath, it will not change God but it will bring harm to you. Turning away from God's word, it's always turning away from good. To turn away from his word is to turn away from that which is good. And so I urge you, don't drown out God's word with the voices of false teachers. And don't silence it with your own agenda either. We're all prone to believing uh, what fits best with our agenda rather than God's agenda when the two are in conflict. We saw this recently in Mark. I brought it up again last week. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus tells uh, the disciples, hey, uh, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And they talk about it with one another. They go, what, what could he have meant rising from the dead? Nobody does that. He must mean something else. Because the Messiah that we're following, he's going to overthrow Rome, the oppressor. He's going to bring victory. He's going to be a conqueror. And we think Jesus is the Messiah, so he must be wrong about what he's saying. That doesn't quite fit with our agenda or our picture of him. He can't be crucified. See, the disciples tripped over Jesus as crucified Messiah. They tripped over him as the bearer of humanity's judgment. And we trip over Jesus as the ultimate bringer of judgment. We have a hard time with his wrath. But Jesus, the one who absorbed God's wrath that is due to sin, he is the same God that will pour his wrath out onto those who in rebellion choose to remain in sin. Still, for whatever reason, poor theologians like to pretend as if Jesus is all love and no wrath. That there's a different God in the New Testament than there is in the Old. But that's just simply not true. Jesus actually teaches on uh, hell and on wrath more than anyone else. And I, I just casually reading this week, I was struck by Jesus' words in Luke 19, 27. This is what he says. But bring here these enemies of mine who do not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. He's telling a parable that foretells about heaven. Bring here these enemies of mine who do not want me to rule over them, Jesus says, and slaughter them in my presence. I think that one's going to go on my next coffee mug. No, you don't see that one show up. Merry Christmas. I'm going to slaughter them in my presence, sipping on my mug. Jesus' words here are true, though. And it's because they're true that we need the God of Christmas rather than the celestial Santa Claus 
of make-believe. Sin is why Jesus must come. God's wrath is real and severe because sin is severe and real. And ultimately, we've said it before, sin is a rejection of God's love. And it is Israel's rejection of God's love that has led her to break the covenant and to worship idols. Look at verse 5 in chapter 1. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her very foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire. And I will destroy all of her idols since she collected the wages of a prostitute. They will be used again for a prostitute. Micah here is addressing the primary sins of Israel which have brought about their coming destruction and those sins are idolatry and injustice. Another way to say is that people have failed to love God and they've failed to love neighbor. Idolatry and injustice. And they bring about the consequence of the fall of Samaria and the northern tribes. These northern tribes of Israel will, will vanish from the pages of history as this prophecy is fulfilled in short order, as the Lord raises the city with an Assyrian army. Judah too will be decimated in accordance with the words of Micah, save for a remnant that is saved in Jerusalem because of the repentance of King Hezekiah and ultimately because of God's commitment to his promise. If you're interested in how all of these things work together and kind of the time period that this has taken place in, you can read uh, 2 Kings chapters 15 through 21 for homework, and it'll be very beneficial to you. It'll be really fun to see how these dots connect a little bit. Let us, though, get a sense of idolatry and the injustice that have stirred up the anger of the Lord. Israel is participating in illicit sex as part of the practice of cult prostitution, which is aimed at ensuring the fertility of their crops, and so they're trusting in these gods for their harvest rather than the God of the universe. Israel is bowing down and worshiping carved images, so much so that Jerusalem is being called a center of idolatry, a high place. They're making sacrifices to these false gods. I mean, literally worshiping idols. I think many of us smirk dismissively at the idolatry amongst the ancient Israelites, but we mustn't be so foolish. It's still very present among us today, idolatry, because idolatry is a heart matter. It begins in the heart. It's the desire to go after other things and put them in the place of God. It's why Calvin has said the human heart is an idol factory. We take normal things and good things, and we turn them into God things. An idol is anything you look to to give you what only God can give you. It's anything you look to for your meaning, satisfaction, or happiness instead of God. So if you look to your iPhone to be happy instead of God, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying it could be maybe an idol. If you look to your spouse instead of God for your happiness, could be an idol. That's why good things are all so often idols in our lives. Because the better a thing is, 
the more likely we are to pervert it and make it a God thing. The more likely we are to worship it. So ask yourself, what causes me to fail to love God completely? Where do I ground my happiness? What or who am I tempted to look to for my meaning, my satisfaction, or my happiness instead of God? Sin is the de-godding of God. It's the de-godding of God and the enthroning of yourself, someone else, or something else in his place. Idolatry ultimately is an expression of unbelief. It's almost funny how many idols we share with the ancients. Sex, control, power, approval, comfort. The list goes on, but you've got the idea. You're smart people after all. Israel was an idolatrous nation, and it was their idolatry that led to sweeping injustice. A failure to love God leads to a failure to love neighbor. Look at the injustice that's going on at the beginning of chapter 2. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they will accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am now planning a disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from this yoke. Then you will not walk so proudly because it will be an evil time. In that day, one will take up a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, We are totally ruined. He measured out allotted land of my people. How he removes it from me. He allots our fields to the obstinate and to traitors. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. In these verses, Micah shifts the focus of his condemnation from the cities, which we'll get to in a second, and populations to the powerful leaders who have exploited others in order to gain for themselves. See, the rich here have wrestled fields from the poor, and consequently, God will send an enemy to wrest the promised land from them. These leaders began to serve the idol of greed in the place of God, and it has brought about this punishment. God will take the land from them. I mean, they are extremely wicked. They are crushing the weak. I think the story of Naboth's vineyard gives us a feel or a flavor for what's going on in Israel during this time. Perhaps you remember the story. If not, let me just give you the highlights King Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard. He wants to turn it into a vegetable garden. Naboth tells him no because he wants to keep the inheritance of his fathers as God has commanded him. Ahab gets really sad. He really mopey. He's moping around the castle, sleeping, crying. And his wicked wife Jezebel says, I'll take care of this. I got it. And so she writes letters in his name to the leaders in Naboth's city, commanding them to proclaim a fast and have two lying witnesses falsely accuse Naboth of cursing God and cursing the king, the penalty for which is death. Well, the result is that Naboth is stoned to death, and guess who gets his vineyard upon his death? Oh, it's King Ahab. It's not the end of the story, though. God does avenge Naboth, but I'll allow you to read the rest of Second Kings, or I'm sorry, First Kings 21 and 22 for homework to learn how. The purpose of Naboth's story, though, is to illustrate the type of covetousness, the type of greed, the type of 
misuse of power that existed among God's people. Naboth's story underlines that misuse for us, and it also underlines the necessity of God's anger and justice. No one, not even a king, will escape the right and good judgment of God. Evil will be dealt with. I do want to point out here, too, that if the secular materialist is right, if life is simply the product of chance over time, then there is nothing wrong with this type of greed-driven behavior. And sure, it would make us squirm a little bit, feel a little bit icky. But if there is no God, there's certainly nothing inherently valuable about humans. And the evolutionary policy known as survival of the fittest, well, ought to be allowed to proceed unimpeded. I, for one, am thankful that humanity is not the result of a cosmic accident that God does exist, that he's made us in his image, and that he always acts according to his character. Thankfully, God deals with evil. And he deals with the evil of his people in our text by handing Israel's cities over to Samaria and sending her people into exile. We read about this, uh, Israel's sentence in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1, and I told you earlier that Micah enjoys puns, and that's what this list of cities is. It's kind of puns and word plays that are talking about God's coming judgment. It doesn't come across well in any of the English translations, and so I'm actually going to read to you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. It's from The Message. Maybe you've heard of it, uh, but let me, let me read it to you because it's really funny what Micah does here. Well, it's not funny. He's talking about judgment, but it is kind of funny at the same time. This is what he says. Don't gossip about this in Telltown. Don't waste your tears. In Dustville, roll in the dust. In Alarmtown, the alarm is sounded. The citizens of Exitboro will never get out alive. Lament, last standing city. There's nothing in you left standing. The villagers of Bittertown wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered Peace City. All you who live in Chariotville, get in your chariots for flight. You led the daughter of Zion into trusting not God, but chariots. Similar sins in Israel also got their start in you. Here's my favorite one. Go ahead and give your goodbye gifts to Goodbyeville. Mirage town beckoned, but disappointed Israel's kings. Inheritance city has lost its inheritance. Glory town has seen the last of its glory. Shave your heads in mourning over the loss of your precious towns. Go bald as a goose egg. They've gone into exile and are not coming back. The sins of the people bring about their destruction, and the pattern continues. Look back in chapter 2 and verses 7 through 10 as Micah proclaims the Lord's ruling against the coveting elites. House of Jacob, should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he has done? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? But recently my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently, like those returning from war. You force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes. You take my blessing from their children forever. Get up and leave, for this is not your place of rest. Because defilement brings destruction, a grievous destruction. The powerful leaders 
that have failed to love God and instead worshipped at the altar of money also fail to love neighbor and instead promote injustice. Micah is sparing no words here of telling about their scandalous crimes. He's shining a light onto their trust in false prophets and he is exposing their unwillingness to repent. These foolish people, they surrounded themselves with teachers who will coddle them rather than tell them the truth. And consequently, they have persisted in their villainy against God and against his people. Like a hostile army, the powerful and rich make war against the defenseless. They strip off the rich mantles from Israel's men, drive mothers from their homes, and deprive children of their inherited splendor. Israel's leaders might just as well have been the Assyrians or later the Babylonians in spoiling Israel. These homegrown oppressors of Israel, they will not go free because God punishes evil and his justice will roll down like the waters of Niagara Falls. These greedy and lustful elites will become grieving and landless exiles. God always adjudicates rightly. Notice, though, Micah is not rejoicing or delighting in foretelling the destruction that is to come. Back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he writes this, Because of this I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches. You can laugh there. It's okay. It's kind of a funny picture. I don't know if you've ever Googled what it sounds like for an ostrich to wail or mourn, but uh, get on YouTube later. That'll be some excitement. It's unforgettable. For her wound is incurable and has reached even Judah. It has approached the gate of my people as far as Jerusalem. Micah is, is wailing like a jackal. He's crying like an eagle owl or an ostrich. Micah teaches us how we should respond to sin and its repercussions here. He is sober and he is mournful because sin is serious. God hates sin. He hates your sin. Psalm 11.5 says this, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, the Lord's soul hates. Listen to this. Don't mishear me, but hear me. God hates us insofar as we identify with our sin. John 3 tells us the same thing. Everyone who loves the darkness hates the light. Everyone who loves sin hates God, and God hates sin. God hates us insofar as we identify with our sin. Did you know that really the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is whose side they take when presented with sin? Who they identify with? Their sin or God? Who do you side with when you are presented with your sin? Israel and most of Judah side with themselves and their sin, and they reap the fruit of destruction. But not all is lost. Some will side with God, namely a good king in Jerusalem, Hezekiah. And in response to Hezekiah's repentance and in harmony with his promise, God will save a remnant. Look at Verses 12 through 13 of chapter 2. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. 
I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its fold. It will be a noisy people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. These verses are a burst of light in the darkness. Micah's shift from doom to hope, it comes in the blink of an eye, it comes in the same breath, and it is welcome. It's like a sunrise after driving all night. The shepherd of Israel gathers his sheep into a protective fold and he leads them out as their triumphant king. See, Micah's prophecy is an exact description of events in 701 BC when the population of Israel had fled for protection uh, from the Assyrians and they've all come into Jerusalem and from which the Lord wonderfully saved them by decimating the Assyrian army. They conquered everybody and they come to the gates of Jerusalem and Hezekiah repents. And and do you know who is credited with leading them out against the Assyrians, about delivering them, about bringing about their salvation? Well, in 2 Kings 19.35, it is the mysterious angel of the Lord who we've encountered before that is identified as this shepherd king who delivers the remnant. I mean, this is, is remarkable. The figure is the angel of the Lord, and yet also the Lord. What does this mean? This is one of the mysteries of the Old Testament, which is impossible to understand without the new. If there's one God, how can he be both in heaven, invisibly, having sent a visible figure? So how can he be invisible and visible at the same time? If this was simply God come in human form, why doesn't it just say he is the Lord, rather than also one sent by the Lord? That's what the word angel means, is messenger. The only explanation that makes sense is that we have here an indication that our one God is nonetheless multipersonal. Here we have deep hint at the Trinity. There's a good reason to see this figure, as we've argued before, as God the Son, as Jesus previous to his incarnation. And his concern, even then, was to bring salvation and peace to his people. Friends, it's still his concern now. You see, God is about displaying his glory to the nations through a people so that all may come to know and worship him. Jesus is now in our day gathering to himself a people, his church, that will, like Hezekiah, repent, believe, and receive his salvation. The message, I think, is clear here at the end of chapter 2. Everyone gets one of two things. Everyone either gets deserved judgment or undeserved grace. Those that get grace are those that say yes to Christ. In this prophecy, a glimmer of hope is seen in the deliverance of the remnant. And that hope is brought into the full light of day with the advent of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true shepherd king who brings eternal salvation to his people. And so I urge you this morning, friends, join the number of the redeemed. Say yes to Christ and receive his undeserved grace. Receive salvation.
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed to those of us that are in Christ the extent of our wickedness. And we thank you that because evil exists and does need punished in the world, that we are able to see in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ just how much you love us. Father, the heights of your love for us can only be measured by the depths to which you are willing to go for us. Oh Lord, sin is serious. We thank you that you have saved us from it. That you have given us an opportunity to be your people. To be among a remnant that is saved by faith in you. Father, we deserve judgment, but you have given grace. And so we praise and worship you. For you are holy, and you are holy good. Amen.